was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Tony-winning composer and lyricist Mark Shaman. Mark Shaman's Broadway writing credits include Hairspray, Catch Me If You Can, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Martin Short, Fame Becomes Me. He has also created arrangements for Broadway solo shows starring Andre de Shields, Patti LuPone, Bette Midler, and Harry Connick Jr. He also wrote and arranged additional material for The Odd Couple, Plaza Suite, The Music Man, and Up in One. He has also written many film and TV scores, including Hocus Pocus, Smash, Mary Poppins Returns, The Bucket List, Marcy X, First Wives Club, The American President, City Slickers, and more. You can also currently see his work on Broadway in the smash hit musical Some Like It Hot, which I was fortunate enough to see and highly recommend. And now, without further ado, here's Mark Shaman. And so I would love to um, start by asking you how you first became interested in the theater and uh, I had, you know, just a basic exposure to musicals as a kid. I remember seeing Oliver or The Sound of Music. You know, there there were some really big musical movies when I was very young, and Mary Poppins being the one that I was the most enamored with. But it wasn't until I tagged along with a friend who uh, was going to audition for The Sound of Music, which was being put on in my local town in New Jersey by two very nice ladies who saw that they, were, they weren't putting on musicals at our junior highs and high schools. So they created this summer theater workshop where they put on shows. And, uh, and I tagged along with her, and I asked if I could audition to play the piano. And I, they said, okay, well, play the piano. Let's hear you. And I played, and they were like, you're all, you're hired. So uh, from that moment on, I just became obsessed with musical theater. And one of those ladies uh, directed a lot of community theater in New Jersey. And she just brought me along with her to all these adult community theater uh, productions. And they would look at her like she was crazy because she said, this is your musical director. And I was 12 or 13. But I, I could just play show business and theater music just so I was born to do it. And so everyone always said, oh, okay. And uh, for like three years, I just did one show after another and, and luckily did like, you know, many or most of the great classic musicals. And that was my, that was my um, school, schooling was was being the musical director for these community theater shows. Oh, yeah. And that that's the long answer to your question. And did you have other styles that you listened to or were influenced by as well, like pop or classical or 
I love pop music. You know, the radio was always on uh, in the car wherever we went. And that was back in the day when there was really just one station you listened to. In New Jersey and New York, it was WABC. So I, you know, loved, heard and loved all the pop music that was on radio as much as I love the theater music or movie music. Um, and to this day, I still, you know, I love it all. I don't know why anyone, you know, will say, oh, I don't listen to that or I don't listen to this. I mean, it's all, it's all good. Yeah. And did you know, even at this point when you were playing the piano, that what you wanted to do was write or? I guess, yeah. I um, I think it was as it is now. I just consider it all entertainment and showbiz. Is, you know, whether I'm playing or arranging music or writing music or writing lyrics or you know producing, it's all the same stuff. Um, I feel blessed and lucky that I have the talent to do a variety of things. Some people truly only can like write lyrics or just write music or just arrange music or orchestrate, but don't get to compose. And I've just been lucky that uh, I was given those gifts to be able to do a few of those things. Sometimes it confuses people. I am often left off of the lyric credit for everything I co-write because people just, you know, they want to compartmentalize and just think, Oh, well, he writes the music and Scott writes the lyrics, even though it says in big print <laughs> lyrics by Scott and Mark. Um, and I love writing lyrics. So that always frustrates me that people can't seem to just see the actual words right in front of their face. Uh, but anyway, I'm very lucky. Very, very lucky. Yeah. And where did you study in terms of college and what was college like for you? Um, I'm a very bad example to someone your age. I uh, went and took the test and got a GED, the high school equivalency, equivalency diploma. And I left school the day I turned 16. And I moved to New York a few months later. So I, although I got a high school diploma, but I did not um, go to school from uh, the October of, my, of, of 11th grade. And um, did not go to college at all. I went to the college of moving to New York and st and starting to work. And that was my schooling. Uh, so I, I'm a kind of a bad example. Often teachers or parents, when I tell that story to students, they're like, shut up, <laughs> shut up. But the truth is I often always say uh, how jealous I am at the thought of being in a classroom with a lot of other people my age who are interested in the same thing and teachers exposing us to all sorts of information and knowledge and I can't imagine how wonderful that must be and I'm completely jealous of, of having missed that experience and how much I could have learned that I had to learn the hard way or still haven't learned but you know things worked out well so uh I can't complain. And was your um, was your family and people around you supportive of your interest growing up? Yeah, they weren't musical. Um, you know, there wasn't like music in the house and they weren't listening to show music. 
that's another thing I'm so jealous of when people talk about, oh, yeah, there was always music in my house and my parents' record collection was, you know, Broadway musicals. I, I didn't have that. But um, when I decided to move to New York, my very standard suburban parents, they didn't, like, say, you cannot go. We will not let you. We will lock you in your room. They saw, I mean, I already started working. I was already getting jobs in New York. So they were just like my mother says she used to, she said like to the high school principal who called her to say, what, what are you doing? She says, what am I going to, you know, chain them to the piano? <laughs> so, you know, they helped me and they moved the piano from New Jersey to the smallest apartment in New York City that ever existed. And, and um, they just could sense that I was, uh, nothing was going to stop me, that I just had it in me to want to do what I was born to do. And um, that was that. Oh, yeah. And what kind of jobs did you sort of start to apply for once you got to New York or started again? I didn't really apply for jobs. I, um, it's, you know, I, I just was a, uh, if you wanted to write a book about being in the right place at the right time and just being lucky, then write a book about me because that just was what happened. When I first, I, not when I first went to New York, but one day when I was 16, I went to New York with a friend to see an off-Broadway show down in the village. And we ran into some people that we knew from New Jersey when we got out of the show and we stepped into a little bar that was there that I shouldn't have been in. I was only 16, but it was like 4.30 in the afternoon. There was no one in there, but there was a piano. And so I started playing the piano and the bartender who was cleaning up, he said, hey, kid, you're good. And he introduced me to the people who were next door who needed a piano player for their cabaret act. And I started playing for them and started coming in on the weekend and playing for them. And, and the bartender w ran the bar, which turned out to be a, a legendary piano bar that's called Marie's Crisis that still exists. And he immediately said, you want to work here? And so I was making cash, like big wads of cash I'd go home with. And I, I was still only 16. Uh, when I turned 17, I lied and told him, well, I'm only going to tell you this now, but I'm turning 18 this weekend. But I was lying. I was only turning 17. But I wanted to let him know it was my birthday. So, uh, yeah, so it's just crazy that I just started working. And then from the friends I was meeting and, and their friends, I just started working on cabaret acts. And uh, I idolized Bette Midler from her first records that had just come out when I was like 13 years old or so. And I just by chance was living in an apartment across from one of her backup singers. And so once again, like being in the right place at the right time, I started playing for my friend across the hall and she went back on the road with Bette Midler and, Bette, and I got hired by Bette Midler. And one thing after another like that, it's just been crazy how things have just fallen in my lap. Oh, yes. And how did um, Up in One happen, that being your first Broadway show? I was just doing a million cabaret acts, and uh, somehow the guys who were producing Peter Allen's show, Up in One, it was Craig Zayden and Neil Marin, right at the beginning of their careers. 
And I don't know. They heard about me, and I got a phone call. I was playing for my friend Zora Rasmussen, who was a cabaret singer and comedian. And we were down in Key West, Florida. And somehow they got the phone number of the cabaret we were playing in Key West. And so Zora and I were at our sound check. And they were like, is there a Mark Shaman here? <laughs> and it was Craig and Neil introducing themselves and saying, uh, would you be interested in musical directing for Peter Allen in a his one-man Broadway show? I, I still don't... I need to ask Neil, how did they... How did they find me? I don't know. They heard about me. I don't know. It's crazy. But it was one thing after another like that of just people hearing about me and me just constantly working and working my way up, working at Saturday Night Live. And then it's from Saturday Night Live. I met Billy Crystal. And so I was working with Bette Midler and Billy Crystal. And then both of their films, film careers really took off at the same time. And I was their music person. And so I worked on Bette Midler's movie Beaches. And I worked on Billy Crystal's movie When Harry Met Sally. And they were both huge successes. And uh, that just led to an, a whole decade of scoring movies, one after another. I'll stop talking now and let you ask another question. <laughs> and what was it like to uh, to come to Broadway in your work with Bette Midler with her show Divine Madness? And I want to congratulate you on your homework. <laughs> so I often do these kind of interviews and sometimes I get so frustrated I want to say to them, why don't you look something up? They ask me the strangest questions. Um, so it was a thrill. I mean, I love Bette Midler so much. I idolized her when I was... Like I said, when I was 12, 13, 14, 15. So to be working with her, you know, so quickly after I moved to New York and to be in a Broadway theater, that was the majestic theater before Phantom of the Opera took over. It's such a shame that that theater doesn't get to be used by any other production. Now that we live in this era where shows exist for decades and decades in one theater. Uh, but there we were at the Majestic, and um, it was a thrill. Any working with Bette Midler in any place is always a thrill. I, I wonder if someone your age totally comprehends all that she has done and her style of performing. Uh, but I hope, being that you've done your homework with me so well, I hope you've been exposed to uh, all that she has done and and what she's capable of. Oh, yes, yes. And I got to see her in Hello, Dolly, which was, of course, fantastic. And do you, what did you sort of do uniquely in arranging for her voice and sort of studying her voice? And, you know. I don't know if I did anything uniquely, but I had studied her initial records enough by being such an avid fan that I just knew and understand, understood the kind of vocal arranging she required in her act you know the signature kind of stuff that she did in her act so I, I fit right in and um, then little by little I you know did more than just vocal arranging to the point where I became her co-producer on records and then just pr producing by myself her records and and working on so many movies uh, with her helping to choose the songs or arrange the songs or orchestrate them record everything you can do with a, a performer and, and also remain friends for 
How long has it been? Since 1977? What year is it now? 87? 97? Oh my God. 40, <laughs> 45 years or something. So that's crazy. <laughs> crazy. And so when you spent a lot of time in Hollywood, as you were saying, scoring movies, did you always have Broadway sort of in the back of your mind or did you think you might stay there forever as a career? Yeah, Broadway was always in the back of my mind. And you can hear if you listen to my movie scores, they're, um, you know, they have themes in them that to me were really, I would often sit and think, if this was a musical, what would this character's first song sound like? And so like those, like the first three lines of a song would become a melody for a movie. Um, and I did get to luckily work on a lot of movies that were very theatrical, yeah. uh, like Sister Act or, um, or even just like at the end of the first Wives Club when the ladies break into song suddenly and the whole movie ends with a, with a fantastic performance of a song. Um, and I was getting to work with Billy Crystal at the Oscars where we would co-write his opening number. So I was doing things that I was getting to exercise the Broadway composer lyricist that I was meant to be. Uh, and, you know, I, I tried to get a, sh you know, write. Sh I wrote many shows when I was in my late teens and early 20s, right through the, you know, I guess, well, yeah, my, to my mid-20s. You know, trying to be on Broadway, but nothing ever, you know, stuck. Not, nothing, you know, ever hit big. And it took me going to Hollywood. And and then doing the work I was doing in Hollywood made me more known to the Broadway community. And finally, when I did the movie South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, which was a musical, then that's when I got the call from Margot Lyon, who was, had the rights to the Hairspray. And she had asked, been asking people, who should I get to write Hairspray? And luckily, South Park had just come out and everyone said to her, call this guy Mark Shaman. So after 10 years of scoring movies, that phone call changed my life. And back to New York, we moved because Hairspray, you know, was a phenomenon. And, and uh, there I was back in New York in the middle of theater. Yeah. And when you were uh, scoring movies, how much of the movie did you usually sort of get to see before you had to write that? Or was it just... You, you see everything. Oh. You, movie music, you, you, you are writing to extreme detail. It's like a tailor making a suit right on the body of the person, you know, that's called bespoke. When a bespoke suit is one that is truly almost made right on your body and that's what movie scoring is you you get the movie you're the last thing to work on a movie because you have to have the final edit and the music you're writing is with the movie right in front of you and uh there's only been one case where i wrote music before they filmed uh the movie where rob marshall who was directing mary poppins returns we had recorded the songs and then they were about to film the movie, but at the recording sessions for the songs where we had a full orchestra, he said, oh, I'd love for you to write some music for this scene and that scene and this scene. And I was like, Rob, you're crazy. What do you mean? You haven't filmed it yet. How can I write the music? It has to match what's on screen and how you edit it. And when we cut to that character or when we see a kite getting caught in the wind and flying off or... Uh, 
He said, oh, you can do it. I said, but what a waste of money. You, you won't use any of it. He was just going to use it as like mood music to film the scenes. But so I went home on Christmas vacation because we were recording in England. And I went home to New York and I just read this script like it was an old-fashioned radio play where I read the dialogue and I read the stage directions with the stage directions being hopefully sort of the same amount of time that the action on screen would be what the stage directions were describing. And I read that all to my computer and I spaced it out to what I thought, well, it'll be something like this. And then I just wrote music to it like like it was a movie, but all the time I was going, I, this is insane. <laughs> And what a, I can't believe the money that's being, you know, to record this music that'll never get used. Cut to a year later, he's editing the movie and everything I recorded that day fit what he filmed. Whether it was because of what I wrote was guiding him in a way or what the screenplay guided me or it was just kismet. It was just meant to be, but... There I was. I had to eat my words. I was shocked. Everything I recorded that day got used in the final movie. It was shocking. And when you were doing that project of Mary Poppins Returns, how did you sort of take into account the songs from the original movie and try to be like similar but not too similar? Um, well, because I had grown up with that, you know, since the time it came out. I mean, so... I had that record as a kid and I, you know, I, I knew every single note of every orchestration, everything, everything. I was just um, obsessed with it. So, so getting to write in that style came naturally and I, you know, tried hard not to literally sound like just totally copying the, the, the music and Scott and I lyrically, you know, not trying to completely imitated not that we could i mean the sherman brothers who wrote that that was like the height you know they're like gods and you know we could just do our best but because of what they had done on the original movie including the director and the production designer and the orchestrator we just wanted to write a love letter to that movie and the plot of mary poppins returns really is about our love for the first movie and, and getting to by telling a story that takes place 25 years later, in our way, we got to uh, verbalize or musicalize our love for that first movie. And um, that was really uh, important to me. To, when I heard that that job existed, I, I think I would have dropped dead if I had not gotten it. I, I don't think I could have handled it. And what are your collaborations like with film directors and how is that also again different from stage directors on shows you're written? It's different from stage directions, but it's also different from movie director to movie director. So everyone is human and different. You know, um, I've had every kind of experience from the most joyful experiences with directors to projects that didn't work out at all, where they replaced my music, you know, where the director and I, just couldn't seem to communicate well enough for me to give him or her what they wanted and everything in between. I've had every kind of experience you can have. Um, 
but you know they're doing a concert of my film music at a film festival in Spain in around two months. So I've had to gather all my music from every movie I ever did and listen to it again to figure out how to create suites for the orchestra. Suites, S-U-I-T-E-S. <laughs> and listening to uh, two certain movies, uh, City Slickers and another movie that's very unknown, forgotten, which was called Heart and Souls, but it's a beautiful movie. And listening to the scores of that I just uh, started to cry out of nostalgia and listening to an orchestra play like that and how lucky I was to be able to write for an orchestras like that. But the thing that really choked me up the most was remembering how sweet the director was, a man named Ron Underwood. And w when he heard the music I was writing, he would just had this most wonderful big smile. And that big smile was like the... It's just what I think of when I heard the music. I thought of how nice it was to have that kind of feedback from a director. Because since then, you know, I have worked with a lot of people on a lot of projects and I don't always get that kind of feedback. And, you know, it's especially in the theater, it's so hard when your work is reviewed and, you know, people say, don't take it personally, but I can't not take it personally. So it's just, it can be very tough, I've learned over the years. But the memory of that one man and his wonderful way of expressing his satisfaction uh, really moves me, moved me to tears. Oh, yeah. And I'd love to ask, is, was there a movie, a movie that you ended up doing that was especially sort of hard to find the musical style for or vocabulary for? Well, most of the ones that I would put in that category are ones where that ended up not having my music in them. I mean, that's only happened, I think, two times to me. Uh, no, eventually you figure it out. Or they go to someone else. So um, um, there are just some that you, you connect with even more than others. I mean, like what I just said, you know, City Slickers and... The American President was a movie where I got, I really connected with the style and, and the feeling of the movie. And then you, there couldn't be anything more different than that and South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. I mean, that's where I really got to co-write songs with Trey Parker, who's a complete genius. And I got to arrange and orchestrate and sing and produce and, you know, co-write lyrics and co-write music and I just got to do everything that God gifted me with. I got to do on that one movie. Um, so that was, you know, the uh, pinnacle of just feeling so at home on a movie. Uh, that was wonderful. Yeah. And so this is, I believe, going back before your being in California. But how did you first meet Scott Whitman? He was, uh, when I told that story about, uh, meeting some old friends from New Jersey and stepping into the bar at Marie's Crisis, the person the, or the people that the bartender went and got next door was Scott Whitman and uh, four other friends who were all still great friends. And they were doing a, a show at what then was the duplex, the original duplex. It's called something else now. Uh, it was just two buildings down. So I met Scott that very first day that I really met people in New York who who asked me to come and play for them. So I've known him since that was 1976. 
That's probably like three times or four times your age. No, yeah, no, no more. Oh my God, yeah. What are you, thirteen? Fourteen. Yeah. So yeah, can you imagine that that amount of time? So yeah, so it was 1976. It was the nation's bicentennial, and that's when I met Scott, and we started working with each other, and have been working with each other ever since. And did you sort of immediately know that she wanted to write together, or? Yeah, we started working with another comedy group uh, that was all girls. It was called The High Heeled Women, and Scott was directing it, and I was the musical director. And it was mostly comedy, but now and then, you know, there were f some f funny musical things. And then one day they, you know, or we all said, oh, let's write like an actual sketch that's about like a musical, that's like a musical. So that was the first thing Scott and I wrote together was this... Uh, sketch for the high-heeled women that was about like um the beach blanket movies of the early 1960s with annette funicello and frankie avalon and so we were spoofing that and we wrote some songs for that and that worked out well and then um and then in the early 1980s we found this clubhouse down in the east village where people would just you could rent it out for the night and do whatever you wanted there and it was a crazy bunch of people, wonderfully crazy. And Scott and I decided, oh, let's just do theatrical things here. Most of the people were more rock and roll and or, or very art oriented, as in, you know, actual paintings. And, and so let's be like, let's do some of the shows that, you know. And it was great because we would do shows there that were only meant to be there for a night. There was no worrying about, oh, are we, let's write the, greatest show ever let's write a show that's gonna go to broadway or, or it was just what can we do to have fun next thursday night and so we would just write stuff off you know quickly and that was of course the most joyous time of writing and that was where scott and mine collaboration as as writers really really uh cemented and developed and then it wasn't until you know almost 20 years later that the phone call came uh from Margot about hairspray and she like i was telling before even though i wrote lyrics and it might have said on a movie screen music and the lyrics she only thought i wrote music and she says well who should write who do you who would you want to write lyrics for this i said me and my partner scott and as a matter of fact i won't do it unless it's me and scott because it was time for me and scott to finally get to do something like that and um that was the beginning of that uh you know so then we wrote hairspray and and that just that went so well and now we're you know all these years later we're constantly you know trying to come close to what we did with hairspray it's very hard you know that was what, what's called lightning in a bottle when mm. something that happens that you know you can't really recreate it's a once in a lifetime kind of experience but we're still trying. And so I'd love to ask about one uh, one more show you did before, uh, Hairspray, which was a less successful show, a leader of the pack. And did that, what did you sort of learn from that experience of having it? Well, I learned how something really great can be destroyed by people who don't seemingly understand what made it great. It was a concert it was a theatrical concert at a rock and roll club down in the village 
that doesn't exist anymore. It was a place called The Bottom Line. But it was a great place that was big enough for some really big rock and roll acts to play, like Bruce Springsteen played there in his early career. And many, many, you know, legendary performers played there. But it was a stage, and you could do theatrical things there as well. And they put on this show because Ellie Greenwich, who was a, one of the great writers from a place called the Brill Building, which was where Carol King, the musical Beautiful, that's what Leader of the Pack was meant to be. Yeah. Because they, they were c contemporaries. Ellie Greenwich and her husband, Jeff Barry, were riding along with Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And there was another couple. Uh, there were this, these three Jewish couples who were just churning out all these great pop hits of the early 60s. So they put on this concert at the bottom line that had people playing the characters and they had a few lines here and there but mostly it just strung together the songs and it was an explosion it was so fantastic people were freaking out it was so good and Darlene Love who was one of the singers who sang many of those records they kind of almost brought her out of retirement and that began the second half of her life and career and a girl named Annie Golden, who's still, you know, doing shows all the time. She's in the new uh, version of Into the Woods that just played at City Center. Annie Golden just sounds so perfectly like a, a rock and roll singer of the early 60s. And so this thing called Leader of the Pack downtown was just a huge hit. It was packed every night. And, you know, everyone was like, just what? What? This has to continue. And unfortunately, the wrong producers and the wrong director got themselves attached to it. And I got to watch them destroy it in front of my eyes. Because when it moved to Broadway, they just made every wrong choice about trying too hard to turn it into a, a book musical. Yeah. Or, and, or maybe just not having the right chemistry between people. Because the very idea that they had is what became so successful with Beautiful so many decades later other people figured out how to tell the actual story of the songwriters and use their songs as the songs and and it's a musical it's a play with music but the songs have the same purpose as like a musical they figured it out but back on leader of the pack no one could figure it out and i was just the vocal arranger i i, I didn't have any say in you know the big decisions but i did little by little see oh this is not working well and it was a total flop and it was just heartbreaking everyone involved with it who had been worked on it downtown just thought well this is it this is you know they really should have just moved what it was downtown to broadway and made it this great theatrical concert anyway that's not what happened end of story And so that brings me to sort of ask you, what do you think of the role of critics in the theater? <laughs> well, they've existed um, since the beginning of time. But who is it that said, was it Leonard Bernstein who said, I've never seen a statue of a critic. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, I guess they're necessary. I mean, with social media, Unfortunately, everyone is a critic now. So the role of the critic has become a little less 
important to the success of a show, I think, because the word of mouth that used to just be, you know, one human telling another person, now it can be one human telling 10,000 people in within five seconds, you know, hit send, and, and their opinion gets broadcast. And so uh, the world is now full of everyone thinks they're a critic, and uh, <laughs> that that's also problematic. I, my, my main problem with, um, you know, the way people criticize shows is they so often they go in thinking it's going to be whatever they think it's going to be. And if it's not that, they have this adverse reaction to it as opposed to just going, oh, let me see what it is as opposed to what I thought it was going to be. And if they would just loosen up and take in that, and I'm not just talking about my own shows, I'm talking about many, many, many shows that I see the reaction to and I'm like puzzled. And I've certainly sat at many, many shows where the audience is so happy, but the reviews were bad and the shows closed. And I'm like, how can this be? The audience is so enjoying this. What could be so wrong about a show that is making this whole audience so happy or so moved or so sad or whatever the emotion is? It, it still doesn't make sense to me how uh, the power to be able to make a show close that is getting through to people yeah. and, do and doesn't get the chance for the word of mouth to spread so that people will recognize. I mean, but it, uh, uh, anyway, it's just sour grapes, you know. Uh, I'm sure if for, for my next show, if the reviews are great, I'll love critics. <laughs> <laughs> and so around this time, you worked on many sort of, if not solo shows, shows that sort of centered around a performer like Andre de Shields or Patti LuPone or Bette Midler on Broadway. And so what do you think, if you think there is one, like sort of the art to presenting a performer to an audience? Oh, that there is a certain art to that, yeah, and that's something that Scott Whitman is very good at. He he uh, directed all of Patti Lapone's shows, well, just about all of them for like the last, oh, I don't know, since the nineties. Um, or Christine Eversall. Scott has done some great shows with Christine Eversall, where you know, working with uh, if a performer has the right bouncing board, springboard with a director and a musical director. And really comes up with interesting material, hopefully material that hasn't been heard a lot, or doing songs that have been heard a lot, but finding a new way to do them, a new way to arrange them, and how to figure out this, the things that you talk about between songs that tie it all together and make a whole night have a, a theme or a feeling. Then it's a it's a fantastic uh way of, of of art that as equally as uh, important or expressive as theater or movies you know a, a great act is it's tough to crack but when you do it it's uh it feels very good and um and bet midler she was just the queen of the modern cabaret style shows of figuring out what's what song what 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 old song should i Re, reintroduce to people and how can I take a song that they know and make it a an acting like a like a like a three-act play and how can I be funny and and then immediately suddenly say something that changes the emotions and 
and suddenly she's singing a ballad and you're crying your eyes out even though you were laughing hysterically two minutes earlier to the most uh, vile dirty joke or you know it's just you know no one has has conquered that kind of style of performing like Bette Midler one person who who has come close who I've been lucky enough to work with is a woman named Bridget Everett who who does her own shows who doesn't really need a director and musical director but at one point the public theater gave her grants so she asked Scott and I to help her put on one of her shows down at Joe's Pub and she does have that ability to talk to the audience and tell stories and it's just she's so funny and so moving and she has such a spectacular unique voice that she can sing rock and roll with the best of them and and then also sing a ballad and break your heart and she has such an outrageous performing style unlike anyone uh so you know people are, are still doing it good if uh. yeah and what was it like to also uh, perform on stage yourself with Andre De Shields and then later with Martin Short? Um, fun. I'm a big ham. <laughs> Scott Scott would use the term stage starved. So I, I enjoy that and um, been lucky enough to every now and then be involved with a project that did allow me to be part of the action and not just be at the piano, but, you know, get to act the fool up on stage. Andre De Shields, you know, he's just one of the, he's, you know, obviously now an iconic Broadway performer. And the show that we did, Harlem Nocturne, it was another example of when we did it downtown at La Mama, which is an experimental theater company on 4th Street that's been around since I think the early 60s. And when we did the show there, it was a huge success. And once again, when it got moved, the Broadway st people who moved it just didn't know what to do with it and how to sell it and how to, the things that they asked to conform to Broadway just didn't. And so, although it did entertain audiences for a few months there, uh, it didn't run as long as, as we had liked. But Andre has done one-man shows his whole whole life I mean they're not one-man shows there's a band and there's usually you know backup singers and who he uses very much up front uh, but he's a phenomenal unique performer uh, who you know is just exquisite to watch even even before he even opens his mouth just the way he walks on stage he's like a god he's just phenomenal and I'm so happy although he was always known the way that he has been heralded in the last few years has just been very satisfying to see happen because he deserves it. Yeah, yeah. And so now to, um, to ask about Hairspray, I'd be curious to know, what is your collaboration sort of like with Scott Whitman on lyrics in terms of, do you split up the songs or do you write together? Or then We write together, we write it all in the room together. Uh, sometimes I'll be at the piano and, and we, first we start throwing phrases out to each other. And with Hairspray, there were already phrases from the movie. For instance, there's two lines from the movie that actually became song titles, both, uh, said by Ricky Lake in the movie, in the original John Waters movie. She says to her mother after her, she brings her mother out to get a makeover 
And then at the end of that montage, she says, Mama, welcome to the 60s. And we were like, boy, that's a song title. So I just, you know, sat at the piano and just tried to think of the rhythm that would be, you know. And, you know, hey, Mama, welcome to the 60s just came out. And, and then we just figure out what the verse is, you know. Hey, Mama, hey, Mama, look around. Everybody's grooving to brand new sound you, you just write a line and you think okay what's the next line that has to rhyme with that and sometimes you think of the line that ends a verse like the good thought you want to be at the end of the verse and you have to work backwards you know what that perfect word is at the end of the last line of a verse and so you have to work backwards to rhyme with that line in the middle of the verse and then you have to think of what goes in between those lines and it's extremely it's like a puzzle a wonderful puzzle, a wonderful jigsaw puzzle. It's like a jigsaw puzzle and a crossword puzzle had a baby. And that's what writing lyrics is like. And I love it. 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 And uh, and then, you know, we just sit across from each other and just, you know, the expression of, you know, uh, when uh, um, someone f finishes your sentence, someone who, who you know so well, they can finish your sentence. We're like that. We can just... We, we think alike, and yet we also think differently. So it's nice that sometimes we say, well, well, I don't know. What about this instead of that? But for the most part, we just are thinking alike. And, uh, you know, it's just phenomenal. When, you, when It's very scary when you first sit down to write, and you're like, oh, God, we've lost our talent, and what are we going to do? And you stare at each other for a day or two, and then and then – a few words come out and you go, oh, yeah, well, it could be, yeah, that it could be about that or, and I guess I know what the kind of rhythm it would be. And then, and before you know it, a, a week earlier, you were like, how are we going to write this song? And what are the words and what are the music? And then a week later, you've written a song that's twice the length it needs to be. And then you have the heartbreak of cutting it down in half because you've written too much, too many verses. Um, because once it starts flowing, then it just starts, hopefully, it just starts flowing. It's, and it's magical. Yeah. And what was your collaboration like also with uh, Thomas Meehan, who wrote the book? And do you like to have the book sort of first? or? And then it, it's not, well, yeah. With Hairspray, we had the movie, so we knew the basic plot and the characters. And then Mark O'Donnell was the main book writer on Hairspray. And he wrote this script, and, and we were developing, well, what else could happen? What if this character did this or, or that? And he was a great collaborator. He would inspire ideas. He would inspire Scott and I with ideas. And then songs that Scott and I just wrote without even thinking about it almost about for a character then mark would have to figure out how can i write a scene that makes that song have to be there at the end of that scene tommy and um came in just when we were going to broadway just to kind of help things along uh so i didn't have as much of a relationship with tom at all he's a, he was a wonderful man and lord knows a very successful one but it was Mark O'Donnell who was the main book writer. And then once we were in final rehearsals for Broadway, Harvey Firestein, who was, you know, our star, but also a brilliant writer, he started coming up with ideas for the book. So, you know, they made an agreement with him. And although he wasn't uh, credited, he did it 
uncredited work on the show as well and and had brilliant ideas of just i don't the word little implies that they um i'm making big little ideas that uh helped just make the story even stronger he was really brilliant at that and so between those three men writing our book uh we had it was an embarrassment of riches really and so what were some of the biggest changes that were made to hairspray throughout the tryout and just things that enriched it like i'm i'm thinking like one thing that harvey added was that Tracy got on the Corny Collins show because of a dance that Seawee taught her. I mean, there was a scene where they were dancing at detention, but Harvey made it more, pointed out more that uh, it was a move, like that she did Peyton Place after midnight that Seawee had just taught her. So she was indebted to Seaweed, and he was part of her ascension to become a dancer on the show. And so at the end of the first act, when it's time to figure out how to fight to get the black kids on the show, Tracy says, no, I, this is payback time. I got on the show because of seaweed, and now I have to fight to get seaweed on the show. And although that was implied as part of the story, like Harvey sharpened those moments to make that even clearer. And stuff like that. I think Harvey also made it that uh, Edna, his character, used to design dresses, but it was a dream that she had put aside. And so at the end, when she comes out of the can at the end, it says the first line she says is, America, I made this myself. So, so it's not just that she's arrived in the can and it's part of this big phenomenal You Can't Stop the Beat finale but that Edna has had her dream come true by the end of the show. By following in her daughter's footsteps, she has found a way, you know, after generations of, of forgetting about her dream, she made her own dress and it's being seen on national television and she's proud of her size and her weight and the way she looks and who she is. So, so those are the things that, um, you know, Harvey definitely emphasized uh, but, you know, Mark O'Donnell also brilliantly figured out ways to make it sound like you think the lines are all from John Waters original movie. But if you look at the script for John Waters movie and you look at the script for Hairspray, the musical, there's barely a line in it from the movie. But he so captured John Waters style and comedy and sense of sense of humor and style. Uh, yeah, Mark was brilliant. It's so sad that so many of our collaborators on Hairspray have passed away yeah. uh, at very early ages. So that's very sad to think about. So Jack O'Brien was, of course, a great director of Hairspray. And what do you think makes a great director for one of your shows or just in general? You know, someone who can guide everyone working on the show towards the same vision. So whether it's uh, the star of the show or the writers of the book or the music and lyrics or just one member of the ensemble, the sets, the lights, that he is making sure that everyone is working as a team and all kind of sees the same vision. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't happen, uh, even with the most talented directors. I mean, sometimes things just don't line up the way they need to. 
but sometimes they do. But, you know, and what Jack O'Brien also does is he, he speaks like a preacher. And so when he talks to the cast at the end of rehearsals, cast and crew, he, he, he can move a cast and crew so with his words, uh, he's so inspirational. Uh, and he's just a great man. He's just a great, great, wonderful man. And so what was it like to have Hairspray uh, put on film afterwards in itself as the musical? And were you involved with that? Yeah. And, and you know, that's not normal. Um, so many f composers of Broadway musicals do not get a chance to actually work on the movies. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, classic musical movies where the person who wrote them is barely involved or may have already passed away. Uh, but, you know, for us, it happened only, I think it was like the sixth year that it was on Broadway that the, we were making the movie. So we got to be a part of that. And although the movie is different in certain aspects from the Broadway musical, it's certainly similar enough to have the same kind of feeling. I mean, there suddenly there was a new screenwriter who was having her own ideas about other new scenes that could happen and other new plot developments and and you have a new director who's choreographer so his style of staging and storytelling is is similar but different and um luckily not so different that you know what ended up on screen wasn't you know hairspray uh and so they both live in, in it's like uh, the multiverse it's like dr strange and the multiverse of madness where there's Hairspray the movie. Well, first of all, there's Hairspray the original movie. Then there's Hairspray the musical on Broadway. Then there's the movie of the musical. You know, they all exist and you can enjoy them all, I hope, uh, for, you know, all their strengths. And um, it was very blessed for Scott and I to get to be so involved with them all. The one that we couldn't get involved with at all was when they did it for NBC live Although that is the basically the book, and and you know it is basically the Broadway musical put on film. We were in England working on Mary Poppins Returns, and we couldn't be there. We couldn't be there for rehearsals, for anything, for recordings, or for the performance. We totally missed out on what was clearly people having the time of their lives. You know, we would look at the Instagram feeds of everyone involved, and they were so happy and having such a good time and having endless cast parties at night around pianos and we were heartsick that we couldn't be part of it we watched it in england it was like three in the morning three thirty in the morning where we got a connection that we were able to watch it live as it was happening but you know we were exhausted it was like three in the morning um and we just couldn't believe that we were sitting in this little library room at a hotel in England watching this live presentation of our show and that we weren't there it was so strange but anyway uh I'm glad it happened yeah and it was wonderful and after uh having such great success with Hairspray were there ideas that you either turned down or started and decided not to do or there have been lots of things we turned down. They've all been hits. So if you want a hit show, come to Scott and I 
and work out a way that to, to make us turn it down because that, that will guarantee your show is going to be in a hit. So I won't name them because um, I don't want anyone to be made to feel like they were the second choice. But we made some boneheaded decisions, but all for the right reasons at the time. Um, and some of the, you know, the shows that we've chosen to do since then have not succeeded in the, you know, anyway, we're near like what Hairspray was. But we believed in those ideas just as much. But uh, one way or the other, things don't always go as you hope. And even when you find like, like particularly with the TV show Smashed, where people were very, very complimentary about the songs that Scott and I were writing and the musical numbers in them, but were not so happy with the show itself, and they would make fun of the show. So that was very weird to, like, people saying, clearly loving the songs and performing them all around, but also making fun of the show that those songs were on. It was, it was very weird. It's like someone's making fun of your family members, and, and you're like, well... And you can recognize, okay, well, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. That's not right. But it still does, it doesn't feel good. Uh, so that was a very um, bipolar like uh, existence of working, working on that show. Um, but even that still refuses to die. And we just had a reading of what could be you know, smashed, sort of the musical on Broadway. And it, and it went pretty well. So okay. we'll see what happens there. And I'm not sure how much you're allowed to say, but of course, I never know. So we cares to know, like, how did you sort of approach turning it into a stage show? And Well, what really happened is um, other people approached it and they wrote a script knowing the songs that existed. They just had their own idea of how to. It, once again, I use the term multiverse. It's such a perfect way to describe it because it's smash, but told as if it's just living in a similar but different universe. So it's people putting on bombshell, but it's not the same people as the TV show, although some of them are named the same. Um, and I I shouldn't say anything more, but uh, it's just very interesting. So. Just two different book writers came at it with their own perspective. And um, there it was. And there we just did a reading, which is just, you know, actors around a table reading it. Uh, we didn't even have a director yet. Uh, and it's just, you could tell that there were certain moments that really were really scoring yeah. uh, and working. And you're like, yeah, this this could work, I guess. But we'll see. And so in terms of readings and things like that, do you believe that shows should have a tryout rather than but a tryout before they come to Broadway? I, I wish it was like the days of the golden age of musical theater where you wrote a show, you went out of town, you went to like four different towns, you learned what the audiences were responding to or what they weren't, you made fixes. I've never had that experience. I mean, Hairspray, we went, we went to Seattle. We did have an out-of-town tryout. It was just one town. And Hairspray was the once-in-a-lifetime thing where <laughs> it all worked from the first night. I mean, we kept improving it, but it was like shining and buffing a car that already is running great and looks great and rides great. So we got to just make it even more fantastic. 
Uh, but I, I wish it was that way of, of going from town to town in the space of like three, four months and then coming to Broadway. I mean, back in the day, you know, the great writers, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein or Candor and Ebb, I mean, they would put on a show almost every year, or every two years, whether their last show was a huge success or an admired flop, whatever, they got back on their feet and they had another show and it went out of town and they figured out what was right or wrong. Jerry Herman, it was the same way. Uh, and that just doesn't happen anymore. Now it takes like seven years to do a show. And, you know, everyone gets too old to get to write the, the amount of shows that you want to be writing to have a whole. I mean, look at all the shows that like Candor and Ebb have written. And you just wish it was a, a different time where you put on a new show every two years. Oh my God, what a dream that would be. And how lucky I would be to even be able to be part of uh, a community of people who were getting the chance to write a new show every two years. And so I'd love to ask about uh, something you've done twice over your Broadway career, which is uh, writing the music for a Neil Simon play, first with The Odd Couple and then with the recent Plaza Suite. And so how do you sort of approach those scripts in terms of figuring out? That's more like a, a writing for the movies where you just try to write music that summons up a certain spirit that is what the director and the actors are trying to put across with the show. Uh, yeah, it's just a coincidence that the two shows I've done that for on Broadway were both revivals of Neil Simon uh, comedies. But it was certainly a pleasure to do both of them. Uh, I loved it. I got to work on a Neil Simon show and stand next to Neil Simon at the Neil Simon Theater. So that was a lot of Neil Simon. Um, and that was an honor beyond words. And uh, and on Plaza Suite, it's all my friends. I mean, John Benjamin Hickey, the director, and Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick, we are all great friends. We are, all, we are our, that's our tribe of friends. And, um, so to get to work on something like that with your friends is really wonderful. And then to get to watch your friends do so well, you know, cause I, I, I mean, I, I toasted them opening night and it was like, I was like, you know, to Sarah and Matthew, I was like, I've been friends with you for so long that, you know, sometimes I almost forget like what you can do when you hit the stage, not forget, but they're just your friends now and you don't, think of it you know so just watching them blossom like that and put on that show which is really hard show where they play they each play three very different characters in the show and to be able to pull that off is just incredible i'm so proud of them oh yeah and you were also uh, involved in another revival this season which was the music man and what was it like to sort of go back to that great score and write new lyrics? Well, it was a great honor to be asked. We've gotten very beaten up for doing that. I mean, I am part of, I, I agree with people who say, oh, please don't rewrite classic shows just to be, you know, woke. But there's a reason why this is all happening. And, well, in the first place, I just really never loved the song Shapoopy. Just the title itself sounds like shit, poop, and pee. So I just, it always gave me a little creepy feeling. So um, 
So it was an honor when they asked us and thought that Scott and I could write lyrics that would blend in with Meredith Wilson's iconic lyrics. So that was a, that was quite a compliment. It was a compliment that we couldn't um, say no to. Yeah. And I believe that we wrote lyrics that sound like the lyrics Meredith Wilson might have written if he took a slightly different point of view about the song and it being more about learn how to be nice to your, your girl and that's the way that you can become her shapoopy as opposed to the old lyrics were about like you know about a you know a girl who kisses on the first date i mean it's just it's just out of date the ideas behind it but i also do agree with like oh god now i kind of wish we hadn't done it because we got beat up just for doing it for the fact that the choice was made to rewrite lyrics for that was met with such you know, eye rolling, but you know, no one's rolling their eyes at the theater every night. You know, people are enjoying it, uh, but it was a kind of um, bittersweet experience to to get beat up over something that you are just trying to help. <laughs> yeah. And so to go back in time a little bit, the um, the next original show you did after Hairspray was Catch Me If You Can on Broadway. And it almost sounded like you just said, text me if you can. Now, that would be an interesting show. Okay. Uh, yes, go on. You were saying. And how did that idea sort of come to you? Was that your own idea or did somebody suggest that? That was Scott's idea. We went to the drama bookstore. Someone came to us with the idea of making a musical of a very old movie and play called Stage Door. That was a movie where Catherine Hepburn really kind of became famous. Early 30s. So we went to find the original script. And so we went to the drama bookstore. And on the table in the middle of the drama bookstore, they had a new picture book that had come out all about the making of Catch Me If You Can that had bits of the screenplays and a lot of behind the scenes talk about it and beautiful glossy pictures. And Scott looked over at the table and said, oh, I'd rather write a musical of that. <laughs> so we got in touch with Steven Spielberg. And we got the rights to write it. And uh, it all happened because we went to the drama bookstore that day. And that that um, coffee table book was sitting there. We could have easily had walked by that table and, and not had seen it if we walked by in the other direction. So, But there it was. And suddenly we had the rights and uh, started to write. But we never figured out quite how to tell that story between the way the songs that Scott and I were writing and our book writers and director and everyone together, we all loved each other very, very much, but couldn't quite figure out a way to tell the story that would, well, get good, good enough reviews. So, you know, we got mixed to poor reviews and that was that, you know, uh, very, very, very depressing when that happens and uh, as you can imagine and although it's still um, put on we I went to see it just a few weeks ago at the arena stage in Washington and we have producers in England who still want to bring it to London because it never played the West End and it would be nice if we could figure it out finally after all these years uh, we'll see and I'd be curious to know about that show, what the um, sort of casting process was like and how involved were you in that? And 
you don't as writers you're very involved with the casting you're you're completely involved i don't know i don't have any strong memories i know bernie telsey the casting director he kept saying aaron tevate you should really really think about this kid aaron tevate who had been in hairspray he had played link at some point like in the fifth or sixth year i think he'd been on tour with hairspray and then he came and did it on broadway for half a year or something um and then Jack and Jerry had just worked with Norbert Leo Butts on, um, whatchamacallit? Uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. God, it's so sad when your memory goes. Uh, so I think it might have been their idea about how about Norbert Leo Butts, who was just a brilliant idea. And I wouldn't have thought of him at first as we were writing it, but he was brilliant. You know, once again, that, the, the cast, we all loved each other and had a, had a great time while working on it but just something was always a little off about hitting the finish line you know successfully it just didn't fully bake it was a souffle that didn't rise the way it's supposed to yeah and so you mentioned um catch me if you can going to london and a show you did that started in london i believe was charlie and the chocolate factory and do you find that there's a difference doing theater here or there, the audience or the... Sort of, but not really. People are people everywhere the same. The production of the show is very different over there, and as was a lot of the writing. Oh. Um, but the, the sets over there were spectacular. Uh, so it, it was a visual feast as well as the story that we were telling. And... Um, so that's one of the things that was very different between England and, and our New York productions. I don't want to keep reliving the ones that didn't work out so great. So, uh, oh, And if I can ask just one more question about that, how did you sort of make the decisions about which parts of the sort of famous score for the existing movie to keep in? And to tell you the truth, those decisions were made for us. Oh. They, were, they were foisted upon us. Uh, so that was a surprise after we had, you know, been spending a few years writing it. Um, but it would be hard to ignore how beloved, uh, those songs are by many generations of people. So it, it, it would have been stupid to not include them. But the fact that we started the project being told, there's no way that those songs are going to be in this. This is going to be its own thing. And you can rest assured that we will never ask to figure out how to put other the songs from the movie in it. So that was, you know, the, the way that went down was not the most perfect way. But, you know, like I said, when, when a song starts playing and you feel the audience go, oh, I love that song. And it means so much to them because they, you know, their childhood or whatever. You can't compete with that kind of... Uh, connection that someone may have from a beloved movie you know if it's something they watched 3,000 times you know yeah. yeah and so your um your newest musical which is coming to Broadway in the fall is also based on a beloved movie some like it hot and so how did the decision to do that arise um our producer some some of the producers of smash who were Craig Zayden and Neil Marin who we Scott and I have worked with a lot who produced the movie of Hairspray and and were the you know the co-creators of Peter Allen Up and One all those many years ago? They 
came to us and said, we've gotten the rights to create a new musical of Some Like It Hot. And because we had been writing songs for Smash that were Marilyn Monroe songs, especially there's one song called Let's Be Bad in Smash, that although it's never said on the show, it's clearly as if this other song existed in the filming of Some Like It Hot. And and so we had we were we had already warmed up our engines in writing songs that fit that story and that style and that era. So they came to us and said, "Would you want to do it?" And we weren't sure. I mean, because we had now been bitten so many times about trying to write musicals to beloved projects that people were already before they walked in the theater had their arms crossed. I don't know why. You know, how dare they do this? So we're like, oh, God, are we not going to learn from our past? And are we going to do this again? But one idea that they said to us that we loved, and it was their idea, was to make sugar black. So, I mean, the one big reason was just in a way to try to get audience to not try to see Marilyn Monroe on stage and to give an actress a chance to create her own character that isn't compared so much to Marilyn Monroe. And so the idea to make her black was just like, oh, wow, that's brilliant. And, you know, a band singer in the late 20s, we've moved it up to the early 30s, but that's when like Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and Lena Horne was just hitting the movie screen. I was like, oh, yeah, she could be like that. And that was just such an inspiring idea that that's why we said yes. Oh. Uh, and there have been other changes made to it that, will make it speak to the current day, even though it takes place in 1931. And we'll see how people react to it. Yeah. And I actually got to see uh, one of the readings at Stage 42, and I loved it, and the new changes. Oh, you were there? Oh, oh. Well, then you know what I'm talking about. Yes. And we're, <laughs> we're still working on it, yeah. But uh, those went pretty well. Uh, there were, there were out of six of them, I'd say there were like three of them that I really went like, oh. This could really work. And not that the other three, I didn't feel that way, but, you know, there were just mistakes made and, you know, things didn't go right that day. But when everything kind of went right, it felt like, yeah, we might have figured out how to do this. But we'll see. It's such a scary time to put on a show. Yeah. And I'd be curious to ask about the casting process for this show as well and dealing with the movie and also reinventing it. I don't know what to say outside of, you know, <laughs> you hold auditions and you see who's available and who can sing the songs great, who can act the scenes right. You know, we have made changes to some of the characters as they are in the movie, but at its core, it's still some like it hot. Um, you know, but like, for instance, the uh, J. Harrison Gee, who now plays the character that Jack Lemmon played in the movie. He's such a brilliant performer and such a spiritually uh, high-level gentleman. And, and the fact that he's non-binary and is able to approach the character of a man putting on a dress and how that affects that person, he can really relate to it in such a wonderful way and helps guide us to, you know, it's, it's just we've been blessed to have him I mean, we're blessed to have everyone in it, but he is really special towards what is making, uh, will make it, I hope, you know, make sense in today's world. Yeah. yeah. 
And so I'd love to um, ask just a few final questions. The first of which being, is there any other idea that you currently have for a show that you would want to do in the future? Or? No, my only idea is retirement and doing nothing. <laughs> Staying home with my husband and my dog. That's, that's the big idea. And then the, um, the final question I'd love to ask is, with such, with such a great career in the theater, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Run! Uh, uh, danger! Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's the same old advice that's been around forever, which is if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, do it. Because the only people who survive in the theater or the movies or in entertainment are people who simply have to do it or die. There's no other choices. There's nothing else you can think of doing or that you are qualified or talented to do. And only people who have that kind of tunnel vision about it can really survive. Uh, that may be true of a lot of professions, but it's, I think, most true of entertainment. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor. Sure. Thank you for asking. I'm fascinated by you and how how you've started to do this and how we... Listeners, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next time when I will be joined by theater historian Robert Viagas to talk about his new book, Good Morning Olive, Haunted Theaters of Broadway and Beyond. Although it's a little after Halloween, it will be a very fun episode, so make sure to tune back in and thanks for listening.